Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky, and our guest today is one of the greatest stand-up comics in history. He was the host of The Tonight Show for 17 years. He's also known for his love of cars. He hosts Jay Leno's Garage for CNBC. The great Jay Leno is here. Jay, thanks a lot for doing this. We appreciate it, man. Thanks, you. Actually, I did The Tonight Show for 22 years, but who's counting? Did I, sh- I shorted you on those last five years? And I, I, we just taped this five years early. Actually. <laughs> oh, God. Got it. <laughs> so, so tell me how you and Sue met originally and wh- how that relationship developed. I'm trying to remember how we met originally. I mean, Sue was always a very funny person, a stand-up comedian. And, you, you know, when you come out here from wherever you're from, when you grow up where you live, you don't know anybody else that's a stand-up comedian. So you sort of seek out those people. And then when you come here, you meet literally dozens of people who want to be stand-up comedians. And, and, and Sue was one of them. Yeah, I think we probably met at the improv, I have a feeling. The improv or the comedy, I, I, I don't know which one exactly, but, but one of those, I'm sure. Tell me what it was like, go back to your very first appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. What was that night like? Well, you know, it's funny. I had done other shows, but The Tonight Show is a show that really puts you over the top. It's the one that really makes you officially a stand-up comedian. I had done Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and all of that. You know, I remember uh, probably the person to get the most bang for the buck was Freddie Prince. Freddie Prince had done Merv Griffin. I know it was was early that day or the day before, the exact same set, and did okay. Merv, thank you very much. It was funny. It was a funny set. You know, young comedian. Thank you, Freddie Prince. And then Freddie went on The Tonight Show, and Sammy Davis is on the couch. And Freddie killed, and Sammy was... (laughs) You know, no, there was no greater supporter of other entertainers than Sammy Davis. I worked with him many times. Just a wonderful guy and probably the world's greatest entertainer in the sense that he could do everything. But anyway, he was dying and rolling. the. Oh, my God, Freddie, come on over here. And then, you know, Freddie was pretty quick on his feet and was ad-libbing with Sammy. And it was sort of a star is born that day. Uh, that's what The Tonight Show was like back in the day. It was the only... You either watch Johnny or you watch Nightline. I'm not even sure if Nightline was there. Yeah, I guess Nightline was there then. Late seventies, yeah. Yeah, and then and then of course you had the Hopalong Cassidy movies on the other channels and stuff like that. So it was really almost anybody who was up at eleven thirty at night was watching Johnny Carson. So I would have to say these days you would have to make dozens of appearances on a late night show to be seen by as many people as you've seen as on one tonight show. So it just, I think it just officially put you in the business. And then you had to sort of, sort of keep the plate spinning, as they say, uh, from that point on. So the first time I saw you was, I think it was 1977 or 1978 at Catch a Rising Star, New York. And that was when I was first kind of like going to clubs, you know, I think right. I maybe auditioned, you know, and you know, the time slots were like 15 minutes pretty much, but you were on stage for 45 minutes and I had never seen somebody so comfortable, so funny, 
Like, and seriously, Jay, you know, it was like, um, not, not just like funny jokes. I mean, it was just like pow, 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 um, crowd work second to none. And I wanted to know how long had you been doing stand up up until that point? Cause you were so polished. Well, my first show was October 17th, 1969 at the bitter end in New York. It was my first time I got on stage. Oh, okay. And, and then it was sort of just knocking around the east coast a little bit uh catch was funny you know new york in the 70s was still a big mob town and i remember i was on stage and i was working the crowd and this guy come i went to the bar afterwards and this guy come up to me he goes hey uh you funny kid hey, you funny kid he took out a hundred dollar bill he folded and he put it in my pocket you know and i said oh uh, no disrespect thank you but you know give it to the church or you know, I, I, I'm fine. And he goes, no, no, I want you to have it. And I said, no, no, no disrespect, sir. I just, you know, I just enjoy doing this. And, and he said to me, you know, a smart kid, you don't take money from people like me. You're going to do okay. That's smart. You don't take that money. And I went, oh, that was like the best lesson. Because I knew so many guys that thought it was cool to hang with mob guys. And then the mob guy would say to you, hey, listen, pick up this package for it at the airport, would you? Yeah, yeah, a friend of mine is coming, in, you know, and then, then they would get busted, and yeah. So it was a, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting time to be in New York City. New York City was just crazy in the seventies. It was just, I mean, Times Square could not have been filthier. Now it looks like Disneyland, Main Street, but back then it was like, oh my god, it was just unbelievable. Just porno shops and hookers, and it was just the craziest place ever. I mean, there was a murder a day in New York City in the 70s. Mm. Easily a murder. I mean, you couldn't even solve one because, uh, wait, I'll get another one. You got to solve it today or else you're on to the next <laughs> one. I mean, it, it, was a pretty, it was a pretty wild time to be in, in, to be, uh, in New York City. But, oh, that didn't answer your question. Um, I, I don't know. You know what's interesting? Johnny Carson came to see me one time. And he gave me some great advice. He said, uh, you know, you, you're funny jokes aren't that strong he says what you should do is take your jokes write them on a card go on stage and read them as dull and as flat as you possibly can and if the joke gets a laugh then you know it's funny then throw in the the voices and the performing skills and all that kind of stuff uh, and that worked for me i remember you know i was always an amateur of letterman when i first saw letterman because letterman was a great wordsmith he could put phrases together in a unique way and and but he wasn't really a performer and he would come up to me and say how can you be so comfortable on stage how can, how can, I think I, and i said well I, I said how can you just get phrases and put things together so and so i think he learned a little bit from me and i learned a little bit from him so it was a it was definitely an interesting time what you know the goal? What, i'm sorry Steve. Ahead, i just wanted to know because i you know back in the day you know, we all were comedians and we just wanted to be comedians, you know, right. now, you know, guys get on stage and, you know, they'll, they'll showcase at, at, at the improv or the comedy store. They're actors who just don't, aren't in anything. So they need to be seen back then, you know, the, the furthest I looked in the future was to get on stage before two o'clock, you know, in the morning, yeah. you know? Okay. Um, so for you, did you ever think, you know, like, oh, you know, like, oh, God, I'd love to host a show or be in a movie or no, on TV? I just wanted to be a stand-up comedian. You know, it's interesting about stand-up. I had a guy in the Tonight Show once. This guy was a blind athlete. And he climbed Mount Everest. Blind. 
Hmm. Okay, imagine you're, it, you don't know if it's day or night. You're on a mountain. It's freezing. You can't breathe. You don't know what you're touching. He climbed on it. And he came on the Tonight Show to talk about it. And he did motivational speaking on the side for corporations. They bring him in, you know, to talk about how he overcame, you know. And I said, do you, do you like doing those motivational speakers? And this hour, he said, no. He said, it drives me crazy because people want me to go, oh, you know, I was going to climb Mount Everest last year, but, you know, the kids got soccer practice and I got to take the way. It just got too much, but I was going to do it. Like, and that's what people say about stand-up. I, I would hear all the time, you know, I was going to do stand-up, but then I decided, you know, to do this and something. Like, as if it's like just the easiest thing in the world, get up and do stand-up. And it always made me laugh. And I always think of that, how furious the blind guy was about people saying they could climb Mount Everest if they had the time, you know? So people never realize how much effort actually goes into being a stand-up. You know, it's funny. Whenever I watch actors play stand-up comedians, I never buy it because they're actors. It's not an insult. It's just the fact I always get the sense they're watching themselves on stage. Comedians don't care what they look like on stage. I mean, in terms of if it gets a laugh, whatever physical thing. <clears throat> I don't think Rodney ever looked in a mirror before he went on stage. He just went on you know, he just went on say, Hey, I gotta hey, make sure the tie the, the knot is real tiny and the shirt's too tight, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but whenever I watch actors, they always perform like like they're watching themselves, but when they go, Oh no, that I don't look handsome enough there. Let me do it this way, regardless of how funny it is. So it it's it's generally a different ball game. Than being than uh, than being an actor. When uh, Sue and I were doing morning radio in New York, uh, Sue was doing some stand up, and I would sometimes get to hang out uh, in in the comedy club at Caroline's or one of those places. And I always envied sort of that back corner where all of the comics got to hang out and sort of do their thing and chop it up a little bit before they were on stage. What what's that whole experience like? That sort of camaraderie. Well, you know, it's funny. People think it's this horrible cutthroat business. And, and to a certain extent, sometimes it can be. But you'll always get more work from other comedians than you'll ever get from an agent or manager, especially when you're starting out. Because nobody can do every job all the time. I mean, I remember, you know, Steve Martin brought Johnny Carson in to see me. Harvey Carmen brought Johnny Carson in to see me. You know, oh, I like this guy's funny. Yeah, You can't make every appearance on, the late, on every late night show at the same time. So there's there's... There is plenty of work for everybody. So there is a camaraderie there and you share something in the sense that you're the odd person out. I think most people become comedians because they don't really fit in anywhere. You know, that was the great thing about doing the Tonight Show. I could be in and around show business without being immersed in it. I mean, I love, I love Charlie Sheen. He's a friend of mine, but I don't want to be Charlie Sheen. So whenever I would have Charlie on the show, uh, we could share his antics and talk about what happened. So I'm sort of in and around it without being in it, you know, and that's what's sort of the grit. Cause I'm kind of a homebody. I would go do the time. I go home at night and my wife and I, and then I'm married 41 years and I work in the garage and do things. And then, Oh, and I come in, I do the tonight show. I wasn't hanging out in the clubs every single night, although when I first started out, obviously. But so that that's what I sort of like about it. You realize when I was in Boston, I was the laziest person anybody know. I come here and suddenly I was the hardest working person anybody. And I never understood that. But And then I realized I didn't really fit in in Boston. Well, I'm not really comfortable here. And then 
I came to the realization being a comedian is being uncomfortable in most situations. That's why you find the humor for it. You just, hmm. you don't really fit in here. I mean, like, I guess, I guess I'm a rich guy now, but I, I don't really hang out with rich guys because I just think they're just awful. <laughs> they're terrible people, you know, and I, and I like regular people and I, 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 I try to fit in there and I think they accept me, but I, that, that's for me. It's just, it's just an odd sort of place to be. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable around all kinds of different people. It's just a matter of you. That's what a comedian does. You just sort of walk through life and you observe and you, you pick up things from each other. You, you know, I love it when I hear foreigners talk about America because it, 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 it makes me, you know, I remember seeing, uh, what was his name, that guy, Kaczynski, the author, he wrote that book. Jersey Kaczynski. Jersey Kaczynski. And I saw him on a talk show. He goes, in America, you, you have a club for impotent men. It's the <laughs> something club where men get together <laughs> and they talk about why they're impotent. And how they, who, who are these men? Why would they, only in America would you have a club for impotent men. <laughs> you know, and I just, you know, I like when, uh, I love when people come from England and I take them to a fast food. You want a large drink? And I give them that 44 ounce. And they're like, <laughs> I mean, you could, they would bathe in that back home. They're like, this is unbelievable. I mean, so to me, I think being a comic is being a stranger in a strange land. You just sort of go through and you observe it. And I, and, and just when I would talk to non-American people, I realized, well, I'm missing a lot of this. I mean, I'd learn a lot from them, from what they observe. I just took it as, second nature that most drinks were 44 ounces <laughs> you know you go to england and this is a large coke it's like in a shot glass you know and uh, and and so that that's i, I i'm rambling here but that's basically what i i mean by being a stranger and not fitting in you're just observing i like being around people that are different because i pick up quirks about myself uh it's like when i like to hang out with i like i like diversity because i like seeing how foreigners, you know, uh, I have a friend from Nigeria and I said, what's the strangest thing about America? He goes, the people here, strangers come up and hug you. I don't understand it. In, <laughs> in Nigeria, you don't walk up to a stranger and put your arms around him. It, that, that's, that's, it's like, oh my good heavens, who is this person touching me? But he's American, so how do you do? And they, they hug, and he was just so, he was just so, he thought this was the oddest thing, you know? So it, it, it just sort of makes me laugh and it makes, it helps me with comedy because I pick up things about myself that I didn't even notice because we all do it. You know? So in, in your travels of doing stand-up, I'm sure you've performed in many other countries. Was there ever a, a place that you performed where they didn't get you? Uh, well, I mean, that would have to be, uh, you know, I used to do the Playboy Club in New York. That was the stupidest. And you would have like five shows a night. I remember one show. They had the room director, and his job was to grade you on your performance. And do you remember this? Yes. Yes. And then he would send that report card to Mr. Hefner. You know. <laughs> so I go in, I go on stage, and I'm just dying. I'm the people are friendly, they're smiling, not a laugh. And, you know, I'm just, <sighs> I come up and go, hey, come here. Man, you get an F. You sucked in it. I said, you know, this material worked the last show. I didn't understand what it's something. He goes, well, they're from Portugal, the Portuguese people. I, but they don't even speak English. 
He goes, so you do Portuguese stuff. You, you know, you make your jokes Portuguese. I, I know, but they don't understand English. You go, hey, look, I, don't you get a, you get an F, man. You bombed tonight. And he's going on and on about this, you know, <laughs> just like, so that would probably be one of the worst. I had a lot of horrible gear. I opened for, do you remember Rare Earth? Get ready, get yeah. ready, rock banders. <laughs> anyway, so I go to this college and, and the audience is like, <laughs> you know, just, first of all, they're all standing. And they're waiting for Rare Earth. I mean, Rare Earth will be out in a minute. Whoa! First comedian, Jayla, boo! Nah, nobody <laughs> knew who I was. So I go on stage, and I have the mic, and the mic is like, like this. And as I'm holding the mic, I realize the cord goes off the stage down into the audience. And I go, well, that's not a good thing. And just as I'm thinking that, the mic is pulled out of my hand, <laughs> and I hear, hey, Larry, you suck! Hey, Larry! Somebody yelling, I'm sending with the, the mic. So now I jump off the stage. I'm going through trying to find the mic, and everybody's, like, trying to trip you and everything. So finally, I locate the cord, and I pull the cord, and the mic is missing. And, and I got charged $75 for losing the mic. And I didn't get paid for the show. <laughs> And I said to the guy, you know, it's not like, no, man, you're supposed to control, you're supposed to hold on to the mic. And I said to me, I'm expecting an audience member to pull it out of my hand, you know. So, yeah, just horrible, just, just horrible gigs, horrible gigs, nightmare gigs. Just hearing a, a club owner saying, you have to hold on to the mic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's part of the gig. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I once opened for Muddy Waters at the Salador uh, in Washington. and. I got there were two shows, and on the second show, a guy came up behind me with a ketchup bottle, cracked it over my head. And you know they don't break like on the movies. In the movies, it goes break, and the guy no, it's like it's like a hit with a rock. Out, just just knocked me out cold. And I got Doctor a day a show's pay on that one. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of nightmare shows. So uh, my, my hometown is Toledo, Ohio, and you came and did a concert there uh, or did a show there years ago, um, back in early 90s, I think. And the one thing no, that, that was, that, I think that was 88, the Masonic Temple. The Masonic Temple. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And beforehand, because we were the radio station that was presenting the, uh, right. the show, uh, you asked me all kinds of questions about Toledo, like things that would resonate and things that would score in Toledo, Frisch's Big Boy and, and oh. Tony Paco's. And you do, is that something you would do everywhere you went? Sort of. I, I mean, we've reached a point now where America is pretty much all the same. I mean, McDonald hamburger you get in Cleveland, it's the same one you get in San Diego with the pickle hanging off to that. I mean, everything is exact. So everything has sort of become uniform. You don't really have, I mean, obviously there are local things, but for the most part, you don't really do need to do that anymore because it, everybody has the internet. Everybody has access to the same information. So not quite so much, but I mean, sometimes you do if there's a local thing. You know, the worst part is, is when you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I, you know, I used to do, <laughs> I used to do these corporate events and I stopped doing this because they, I would always say, is there anybody that's, uh, oh yeah, we got this guy, uh, uh, Bob Walker. He's the biggest flirt, you know, in the office. So if you do any material about girls, it's like, always make a Bob Walker. It'll get a big laugh. Uh, okay. So I don't know, unless it costs you Bob Walker. <laughs> Do another joke. So I, said, I guess uh, unless Bob Walker's here. <laughs> yeah. By the time I get to the third joke, this woman. 
<laughs> runs out of tears streaming down. Well, they nobody told me Bob Walker's wife was in the audience, right? So, so like, Bob, what do you think of me? Shut your mouth, you asshole. So they had to say, well, your friend said, you know. Yeah, and then and then the, the guy in the office go, oh, I didn't I forgot his wife was coming. You know, said, yeah, yeah. Then there was one I did one for first alert uh fire detection systems, and it's all ex-police and ex-detectives, you know. So they're all very you know, same thing again, you know. Unless of course you're Bob Johnson. Ah, big laugh, you know, da 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 Bob Johnson. <laughs> ah, big laugh. But the third time goes, Why are you picking on me? What the hell I ever do to you? <laughs> so your friends just thought. They said, I said, who can I have some fun with? And they, they said, Bob John. Which guy? Who's that? Who said it? And then they, I see the boss going. I'm like, uh, well, somebody here. Which one? Uh, uh, and I thought the show has just come to a complete halt. But probably the worst show, just from a professional standpoint, was in, uh, I was in Milwaukee. I'm in a casino. And I'm on stage about two minutes in. And I do a funny joke. And I hear, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, everybody okay? So I continue. <laughs> so I'm like, um, uh, everybody right here? So now I can't concentrate because every time I do something, <laughs> well, after the show, I'm, I'm like, I mean, the, show, the whole show was just a washout. And I said to the the guy, after, what, what? well, it was a guy that had some sort of Tourette's or some kind. I'm not making fun of the guy. It just, that's how he reacted when something was funny. But nobody told me that. You know, you just have that. I remember I was dating a girl once and, and she brought her parents to the show. And her father's sitting right down there. So I go on stage just Todd and I'm da 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 he's like, he's like this. <laughs> so he doesn't laugh. Okay. So uh, do some material. Da da da. Nothing. So now I'm like sweating, but I can't get this guy to laugh, you know? So then he <laughs> comes backstage. And this is when the girl tells me, she goes, Oh, my dad had Bell's palsy. He can't move his face. Mm. But why don't you tell me that before the show? Okay, I'm on stage and he's he's he's, he's just staring at me. He's not he's not moving. Up. I said if I'd known that, you know, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of awful shows out there. So like when you um when you first started um, hosting the Tonight Show, well let, let me go back. When you were the guest host for the first time, right? What did it feel like sitting behind Johnny's desk doing that job? Um. You know, the nice thing about being in the business for quite a few years before that is you learned, I think if you had just come out from Boston and in the first week you got rushed to tonight, I mean, I think you would be overwhelmed by it. I had been passed over enough times on The Tonight Show. I had gone with other performers when they did their first Tonight Show. So I was used to it and I was just kind of, Someday I, I hope to be able to do this show. I didn't think I'd host it, but uh, so I, it, I was comfortable. I was very glad that I didn't make it my first couple of years in the business. I mean, I didn't Tonight Show when I was twenty-seven. At the time, I actually thought I was the oldest person ever to do the Tonight Show. At this point, it just seemed like I'd been around for years and years. So when it happened, I oh, I, I felt comfortable and I felt ready 
you know, I had material prepared and stuff like that. So it wasn't overwhelming, but I mean, it was certainly exciting, but I was professional or not. You know, I, I always shoot for contented. I don't shoot for deliriously happy and I don't get depressed. I shoot for contented. So then when I am happy, oh, I really enjoy it because I really, you can't constantly be happy. Then you'd be just an idiot. It's like drinking champagne every day. You're an alcoholic by the end of the month. It's something you, you just sort of enjoy. So, yes, it was like a nice glow. It was like, oh, I got this hosting thing. This is really good. I'm really enjoying this. I put a lot of effort into it. I was the right age by the time it had. I was in my 30s. I wasn't in my 20s. You know, Freddie, uh, Freddie Prince and I were good friends. And, you know, I taught Freddie how to drive and took him to my mom's house for dinner. He's only 19 years old. And Freddie was dead by the time he was 22. He just was going 100 miles an hour. And I learned from watching Freddie, oh, man, you, you can't do this too quickly. You know, the longer it takes, comedy's like golf. If you're any good at it, you can play it till you're 75 or 80, you know. And you just sort of learn to roll with it. You know, you can never do the Tonight Show too late. You can only do it too soon and screw it up. And that was always the attitude I had. So I had uh, years ago met uh, met Johnny, which was like one of the most, uh, you know, nervous experience. I was just so intimidated by Johnny. What was your relationship uh, like with, with Johnny Carson? Oh, I had a good relationship with Johnny. In fact, uh, Johnny's grand Johnny's father's car is right over there in the corner. Huh. Uh, you, do you remember a special back in 82, 82 or 84 called Johnny Goes Home? Yes, where, I do, where he goes back to Nebraska. He goes back. And NBC was trying to find a 39 car. Johnny had uh, home movie footage, which was so rare in the 40s, of him when he's like uh, – nine or 10 polishing his dad's car and then pictures him when he's 18, taking it to the prom, uh, not pictures, moving, you know, moving pictures, moving pictures, film, <laughs> moving pictures. Oh, oh, Hello, man. old man. Was it a talkie? <laughs> there weren't a talkie. Anyway. So NBC thought, let's try and find a 39 Chrysler. And when you come from a small town, like Johnny did, the car was still in town. A guy owned it and they bought it and they gave it to Johnny as a gift. So Johnny drove it and used it in the show. And then when Johnny died, he left it to me. And, you know, he said, I know you'll take care of this. I know you like cars. So, so that was probably indicative of our relationship. He was more of a Letterman guy than I was. I mean, Johnny, I don't think, was consulted when it came time to uh, change over. I think he thought it would go to Dave, or at least he think he wanted to say and the network had their own ideas. So for the first year or two, it was a little tricky. But then we became close and we had dinner a couple of times. So it was, it was good. It was good. So speaking of cars, where did this passion come from? Were you like a, a matchbox kid, you know, back in the day? Um, no, no. I just like, you know, I, again, I grew up in rural New England where uh, there was always broken snowmobiles. Or, you know, my mom knew nothing about cars, but she knew if she opened the hood of her Valiant and took off that round thing and stuck a screwdriver down the other round thing and kept the flap open and turned the key, the car would start. So people had to have a certain intuitive sense of mechanical things. It's not so, now cars are pretty bulletproof. You don't, you don't need to do anything to them really to put gas in them. That's about it. Even the electrical, you don't have to do that. So, but back in the day it was just different. And 
we had three acres of land. It was a rural area. You could have an old car and drive around. You know, I remember we found a 59 Renault and we dragged it home and got around. And we'd drive around the backyard for hours. My mom would watch out the window. Of course, now they would call child services and your parents would be arrested. But but back then you could you could do that kind of stuff. You know, you could uh, boys were expecting here's how here you go. Uh, I remember kids bringing their BB guns to school, <laughs> rifles, putting, putting them in the locker, okay, because you were in the gun club. Okay, try that now. Let me have that. Get down, get down. <laughs> uh, it, it was just a different, it was just a different time. What do you think of the guys that are doing late night now? What do you think of uh, you know Colbert and and Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel? You know, and- I think they're I think they're all incredible. The, the trouble. I'm that they had the same problem we had. You, you, you're all doing the same joke about the same person. Uh, you know, everybody thought, Oh, Trump's going to be great for comedy. No, it's terrible for comedy because, you know, comedy is conservatism plus exaggeration. Imagine if the president did this. Yeah. It's like the president banging hookers. All right. Well, Trump is banging hookers. Where do you go now? Where do you take it? I mean, what can you say that's worse or funnier or whatever adjective you want than what the person is actually doing? So it, it, it was very hard. Plus now we, you know, it's so funny back in my era, Dave, too, to a certain extent, the idea was you made fun of both sides and, I prided myself on people not knowing my politics. Well, Leno, you and your Republican friends. Well, Leno, you and your Democratic buddies. I hope you're happy. And I, I get those same letters every week. I, oh, this is fabulous. Good. Each hate me because they think I'm the other one. Oh, that's perfect. That's fine. Uh, now you sort of have to say who you're for and what you're for. And immediately you lose a half the country. I mean, when I, in my day, we always had an equal number of Democrat and Republican jokes. Uh, obviously, when Clinton was president, there was probably a lot more, but that wasn't so much politics. That was just men behaving badly. So that was kind of easier to do. Uh, so it, it's, it's very hard to do. Plus, you have network and streaming. You know, Dave and I were lucky. We did it at a time when there wasn't really much on late night. Cable was making inroads, but it's not like now where you can watch literally any show you want at any time you want. So why would you go to late night shows that have nine minutes of advertising at that 12 o'clock break or something? I mean, it's crazy. When I watch the late night shows now, it's like, I really have to just just tape it or if you tape it anymore. But, you know, I, I record it and just, just speed through it and I go, geez, I feel so sorry because to hang on to a guest now, plus we live in an era where there's, you know, the guests appear everywhere before they get to you. It used to be you waited for the Letterman or me or the Tonight Show or whatever it might be. Uh, now they're on every other show. So I know for the last five years, the Tonight Show, the monologue was 12 to 14 minutes long every night because the guests didn't matter. They'd been everywhere before they got to you. So you maybe try to put as much comedy in this thing as you can, you know, and, and that's what we did. So did you um, did you have final say of who your guests were? You know, I'm uh, dyslexic, so I'm a huge believer in low self-esteem. You know, if you don't think you're the smartest person in the room, you'll do fine. My attitude is let me hire the best people I can, directors, writers, and let them do their job. And booking agents would come to me and say, 
how about Rush Limbaugh? And I go, you know, I don't really like Rush Limbaugh. We know, but he's big and he just, you know, I said, you know, it's not a bully pulpit, you know, it's, 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 a, you, you give voice to all Americans that seem to have some talent or whatever it might be. And that was the attitude. So yeah, the show was booked. I mean, I, I could protest if I wanted. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one time I got involved in the book. Uh, uh, you remember when Kathleen Gifford and her husband, remember Frank was having that affair? Remember that whole yeah, thing? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we were just, just doing Kathleen jokes mercilessly every night, you know. And there was one joke that made Kathleen furious. And the joke was, uh-oh, Kathleen Gifford just found out there's no such thing as Tuesday night football. That was the joke. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, that, and, and that got picked up everywhere. And she said something. I said, let's try and book another. So I, I said to Tracy Fiss, our, uh, one of our producers, I said, Tracy, see you in your book, uh, Kathy Griffin. But Tracy goes in and she, I said, how'd you make out? She goes, no, Jay, she hates you. She's not going to do it. I said, oh, come on. No, she won't do it. I said, well, I, maybe I should try. She, Don't try. She's not going to do it. I said, let me try. So I go out and I say to an intern, get me a Kathy Lee's phone number. I get Kathy Lee's phone number. I dial it. Hello, Kathy Lee. Yes, Jay Leno. Hi, Jay. How are you? What a nice surprise! Uh, uh, something at oh, he said, listen. Uh, we have a spot Thursday night. Uh, you might have to ER. ER is the obviously you know the hottest show. It's a huge lead, and you'll be lead guest. Would you like to? Uh, Jay, I would love to do that. I said, well, Kathy Lee, thank you very much. Great. Click on one. <laughs> Look at me, the power of being the star of the show. So I go back in the booking room and I go, Hey, Tracy, everybody. Just booked Kathy Lee, so just giving, just I'm, I'm giving my heart time. Just showing you how it's done. And Tracy goes, Jay, I just spoke to Kathy Lee again. She said she's not doing it. No, I just spoke to. I, I know who you spoke to, but it wasn't Kathy Lee. What? So I go to the intern and I say, whose phone number did you give me? She said, Kathy Lee Crosby. No, not Kathy Lee Crosby. I said that's incredible. Hasn't been on for twenty five years. Are you telling me I just booked Kathy Lee Crosby for Thursday night lead guest? <laughs> <laughs> so now, now it's my fault. Now I have to go back and call Kathy Lee Crosby <laughs> and, and explain my stupid mistake. So that's why that's why I let I let the talent people do the talent, the lighting people do the lights. I write joke, tell joke, get checked. That was my job. Do you do you miss it at all? Do you think sometimes, God, I I, I miss those times? Well, I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, I did it for 22 years. You can't be greedy here. Uh, at some point, I shouldn't have to know all of Jay-Z's music, you know? I, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you have hip-hop people on. You can't pretend. You know, it got to a point where I'd say, uh, my next guest has sold more records than Elvis and the Beatles combined. Please welcome, who is this? <laughs> I never heard of him. I never heard of the group. I never heard the song. Who is this guy? You know, I mean, that. <laughs> That happened more times than you can imagine. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when, when the time came along to move along, you know, I certainly had a good run. And no, I, I don't I don't complain about it. I, I mean, it's a different time now. You can only live in the time you live in. You know, you know, my boxing friends will say, uh, you know, if Muhammad Ali had fought Joe, uh, you know, Marciano, blah, 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 blah. Well, no, they couldn't have fought because they didn't live in the same time case closed. So I, I think Dave and I were fortunate. We lived in a time when late night television was still hugely relevant. Well, it still is. Uh, but 
now it's just viral. Now you have to take a picture of your lunch and send it out. And I don't know why that's interesting to people, but apparently it is. There's just so much more you have to do. So I have great admiration for all the guys that do it. Uh, Kimmel's funny. Whenever I watch him do the Academy Awards, I go, these are great jokes. They're great jokes. Uh, yeah, I mean, Arsenio, Conan. I mean, everybody. They're all good. They're all good. So, but it, it, But it is a different time. And what about stand-up? Is that something? Do you see yourself um, doing that till whenever? <laughs> I mean, well, I was doing 210 shows a year until March 17th. That's my last mm-hmm. show in Jersey. And uh, and the governor said, "You're the last show. When you come off stage on the 17th, that's it. We're closing New Jersey." I thought, mm-hmm. "All right, so I'm off for two weeks." Yeah. So I, I've been on stage really in a year. So it's it's a little tricky. I've been doing a lot of Zoom things like this, Zoom shows, corporate shows, and things. And it's an interesting challenge. Um, it's different, but but you make it work, you know. Um, last thing for you as you as you look back on everything so far, and obviously you've got Jay Leno's Garage, which is on CNBC. I, I'm curious for you. Because I'm not a car guy, you can take my man card right now. Uh, right. But what is what is your favorite car? What is your favorite car that you own? Well, I, I wouldn't have all these cars without a favorite. I mean, they all sort of do something different. Some are 100 years old and they run on steam. Some are 100 years old, they run electricity, gas turbine, uh, racing. Car. I mean, they're all different. I just, you know, when you work with your hands, it makes you appreciate how easy it is to get paid for talking. You know, if we take a transmission out on a Saturday, ah, ah, my hand's bleeding. You realize some guy made 80 bucks for the day for doing that. And I go, boy, this sucks. It makes you appreciate. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm always amazed at comedians that turn down jobs for the money. And I go, really? What are you doing on a Tuesday that's worth that kind of dough? You know, my mantra was, I just take the job. Tell me what it pays later. Because I like to work. And if you're any good the money will come, you know, all throughout my career, people say, you know, you made that deal. You're getting screwed. I go, I know, but I live in Beverly Hills and you're at the Oakwood gardens. Okay. I mean, uh, how am I getting screwed? (laughs) Tell me, what am I doing? What are you doing right that I'm doing wrong here? You know, I mean, a little sort of story on that. When, when Sue mentioned guest hosting back in the eighties, there were about seven or eight comedians that were all guest hosting. And most of them, except for me, had the same manager. And the manager called me one day and said, uh, listen, we're all guest hosting. We're going to Johnny. We're going to ask $25,000 a night to guest host. And I said, oh, okay. Well, right now I'm getting scale $512. I said, I'm, I'm going to keep the $512. They said, well, you know, if you join us, we'll get you $25,000 a night. Because that's where all the other comments. I said, you know, I'll keep, I'll keep doing it for $512. Well, guess who named, gets named permanent guest host? When you save Johnny Carson $25,000, I mean $250,000 a week, oh, that's pretty good. And that's what I mean. You take a job because it's a job, and if you're any good at it, the money will come later. I mean, it, obviously, it doesn't work for everything, but that attitude always worked for me. And because I like to work, because let's face it, as comedians, the same show I do for free at the Comedy Magic Club every Sunday night since 1978 is the same show you get paid crazy money for to do 
at a stadium or at a corporate event or whatever. So what difference does it make? But I knew hosting the Tonight Show would give you the exposure, the visibility. You know, I mean, if you like doing this, you do it. And you, you worry about the money later. You're not, do I look like I missed any meals? No. So it wasn't that important. And, and you know, show business is one of those, unlike being a teacher where merit does not get you any financial gain, the show business, well, how good is he? Well, look how much he made. Oh, okay. So that's sort of a, an interesting way to judge it. And, and it, it paid off for me. Uh, well, listen, uh, Jay, we really appreciate you uh, coming on and hanging out a little bit with us. Uh, huge fan. I saw you on uh, Bill Maher recently. Unbelievably funny stuff. Um, oh, thank-, th- thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks, you guys. Thanks. So I appreciate it. And there is the great Jay Leno. Uh, unbelievably funny uh, still and still out there doing stand up and so you and uh, Jay go along with you. You're in the in the stand up comedy club. Yes, we are. Um, yeah, I mean, I used to hang out with Jay all the time. You know, my my I guess it was probably um, in the early 80s for probably 80 to 84. I had a roommate who was a manager and um, we were all friends with Jay's wife and we would have parties at our apartment and he mm. always came. <laughs> and, and, you know, I used to see him at the Comedy and Magic Club all the time. I used to, you know, I've opened for him a few times. I did the Tonight Show with him. Um, he was always the nicest, most gracious person that I knew in, 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 in show business. Really. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I'm working on my act right now. Oh, God. <laughs> Will you open for me? You're, I'm like, gonna you're, like the, you're like the boy who cried, I have an act. <laughs> <laughs> that was the big joke. For years, you were going to open for me and I was going to middle. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to I miss your stand-up. You. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. You did it when we were out in New York, and uh, mm-hmm. and I thought you, I thought you killed. Oh well, thank you. Oh, yeah. do you remember? Were you there? Oh yeah, you were there. I remember when we were doing the radio show? They had a, um, they asked people from from different shows to uh, to come up and speak, and and I was asked to do stand up in front of all the radio station people, Ooh. and I got like really really bad intel on you know how much fun it was going to be and the crowd is great it's kind of like doing stand up for people who just you know like cuz i i was i was a newbie so i wasn't yeah. really like part of the big radio club yet correct and um they, you know a lot of people kind of you know a lot of people had a lot of attitude about us you yeah. know yeah so, why do you think i thought we were so good i don't know whether People were like in love with Dave Herman. Uh, you know, we took over Dave Herman. You know, we didn't we didn't get Dave Herman fired. You no, know? we did not. But Dave had been there a really long time, and we were new. And maybe they thought we were cocky. I don't know. Yeah, but it was so bad. I mean, it was I a bad act. Terribly, and I had some really really funny jokes about waking up early in the morning and like you know now I'm like friends with all the bread guys and hookers. You know, um, right? That's all you saw in the morning at that hour. Sure. You know? o'clock in the morning um anyway um but i wanted to actually tell you um my probably the greatest saddest um not doing the tonight show story i did the tonight show story with jay and i got booked to do the tonight show with johnny 
um, the year he was going off the air. Wow. So I was up in Buffalo, New York, um, having a horrible week at this comedy club. I was headlining and I just was not clicking with the audience. And I go back to my, um, the condo that we shared and I get a phone call from someone who, who says they're Jim McCauley, who booked the booked Tonight, the Tonight Show. Comments, yeah. right? So he says, Sue, it's Jim McCauley. And I just want you to know that you got the Tonight Show. And uh, I thought it was a friend of mine just like screwing with me. And I said, yeah. oh, stop it. You know, I said, you know, who is this? And he said, it's, it's Jim McCauley, Sue. And I was like, oh, my God. He said, um, I, you know, let's, you know, we'll work on your act. I, I pretty much know, you know, what I want you to do. And uh, I don't have a date right now, but um, you're going to do the show. Johnny goes off the air. And I was like, oh, my God. And it was the worst week. So it was the greatest news, the, work, the worst week of my yeah, right. career. So, you know, I go back to L.A. and I'm so excited. And um, I guess it was like months later, um, I was with Kenny Ober at the time. And we went to Mexico on just like a, you know, spur of the moment trip to Rosarita Beach. Right. And we made a deal that we weren't going to bring our cell phones with us on vacation. Ooh. So we go and, you know, we come back and I get a message from Macaulay saying oh. that somebody had bowed out and they had an opening. No. And I missed it. And I was like, oh. oh my God. And then I could not get another date because everybody wanted, wanted to do the to show because it was show. the last year. Yeah. So many people had preference over me and I never ended up doing it. Oh. So I got it and then I didn't do it. So did you do any late night shows? Well, I did, I did, you know, Jay show. Oh, Jim right, right. called up Jay and told him what happened. And he said, um, I really want you to put her on early in your reign because she should be on like immediately because she missed out being with Johnny. And Jay already knew me, so right. he would have booked me anyway. So I did that. Uh, Pat Sajak was the first late night show that Pat I did. Pat Sajak, people forget that he did a late night talk show. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember I had, ha I had auditioned for Letterman and I knew Morty, you know, cause I used to see him in the clubs all the time and I right. was kind of friendly with Morty and he'd never booked me on the show. So I do Pat Sajak and it was a great, great set. Yeah. And then I bump into him, I guess the following week at a club in New York and he comes over to me and he said, Oh boy, that was a mistake. Not putting you on the show, <laughs> you know, not, not putting me on Letterman. Yeah. He said, I wish we would have put you on Letterman first. And yeah. then he never put, and then he never put me on Letterman after that. But, um, yeah, so it's nerve wracking boy. It's nerve wracking. Cause you know, you're, you're, you're working without a net late night TV, you know, it's like scary. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've seen some standups kind of go up on their material and, you know, kind of like lose their place a little bit. There was a, a, a comedian who um, she was wearing a belt and the belt fell off like, like a couple of minutes into her act <laughs> and she didn't comment on the, it. She, the belt she, fell she, off. You know, it was like when we, you know, a lot of times women wear a belt over like an outfit, oh, yeah. you know, it wasn't like it fell yeah. out of the loops, you know, <laughs> um, she was wearing a dress or a skirt or something. And, um, and she didn't comment on it. And, you know, you're, you're home watching it and it's like, well, she's got to say something about it. And yeah. she just, you know, just, you know. So funny you say this because I just told this story recently about, uh, well, first of all, Jeff Passan, who's a friend of mine who writes baseball for ESPN uh, and, and is on SportsCenter all the time. I'm watching him on SportsCenter one day and there is an enormous fly on his cheek. 
And I mean, it is, it's the size of a nickel. Okay. It's not, it's not, it's not like, a Mike, it's not a Mike Pence fly. No, it is not a Mike Pence. And it lands on his cheek and he just keeps on doing his report and it flies away. Then it flies back. It lands on his cheek again. And all I could think was, Jeff, acknowledge the fly, wave it away, something. And it reminded me, I, there was one point where I was called in and it came down, I think it came down to me and George Lopez uh, for a show that Tony Danza was doing, um, kind of a sports politically incorrect. And I did my test and we had to t- test with the whole episode. I did my test and I started sweating. And I mean, sweating to the point where there was one point there was a bead of sweat at the end of my nose that I was just waiting for it to drop. And Eric Kramer, the old Lions quarterback, was there. And we got to a commercial break. He said, dude, wipe your fucking face. (laughs) I was trying to ignore it from happening. And it was happening. It was like Albert Brooks in broadcast news. It was. Everything I learned about uh, being a TV anchor, I learned from Albert Brooks in broadcast, right down to sit on the edge of the sport jacket. Do you remember right, that? So it doesn't ride up on you. So it doesn't ride up. Yeah. Well, that was great. Jay, Jay Leno, fantastic guy. Really excited that we got to do that. Um, and uh, don't forget to subscribe, to rate, and to review the podcast. We really do appreciate that. And I want to say thank you to our sponsor, of the show, who is Jacob Emrani. We got people listening all over the world, Sue. For some reason, we've got a cluster of fans in France that just won't quit. Wow, and they understand everything we're saying, huh? We are we are big in France, yes. <laughs> is it dubbed? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you are in LA and you're involved in a car accident or motorcycle accident, accident as a pedestrian, Uh, You want somebody on your side that's been doing this for 24 years in Los Angeles. There is nobody better. When my dad was involved in an accident years ago, first person I called, Jacob Imrani. Um, That's how strongly I feel about it. So if you are involved in any kind of accident or it's your dad or it's your your kid or whoever it happens to be, make sure to get a pro on your side. The number is 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB, or remember the catchy jingle, accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, Call Jacob. Jacob. That was a that was a stick landing. That was. That was a, that was a 10. Simone Biles, look out. <laughs> All right. Hey, Sue, fun today. Thanks very much. All right. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. Bye.